Well, I want you to think of a situation in your life where you're tempted to give up. A situation where you are tempted to despair. Maybe it's in your own walk with God and things are just too hard. Too many questions, too many doubts and you just think, I can't do this anymore. Maybe there's situations in work which are hard. Tensions with other people or the workload just seems too much. Maybe it's with our family or with our friends and things just seem too hard. Uh, We are praying for them, but they're not trusting in the Lord Jesus. And we long for them to hear and know about Jesus, but they just don't want to know. Or maybe there's other tensions in the family that make life really hard and we're tempted to give up, tempted to despair. Maybe tempted to despair as we look at our valley and we think, well, there's so many people here and so few churches. uh, People aren't trusting, people aren't listening. So what is, what is going to happen? You know, do we carry on? And maybe we're tempted to give up, tempted to despair. Maybe you look at our nation and you think, well, people just seem so far from wanting to know about the Lord Jesus. What's the point carrying on? There might be other things where you can think of that you're tempted to despair, tempted to give up. And maybe this morning, as we bring those reasons to our mind, there could be lots of different reasons why we're tempted to despair this morning. One is because you've kind of pushed God out of your situation and you haven't factored him in at all. And you're trying to live life on your own. You're trying to do it in your own strength. And you are bearing all the weight of all the pressures that you face in life. Every discussion, every decision, every mistake, every struggle is down to you because God is not in the picture. And it's too much to bear. It's overwhelming. Or maybe in your situation, you have God in your life and in your mind and in your heart. And you kind of bring these things to him. But really, God is so small and powerless in that situation that he's not making any difference. You've shrunk him down to not be able to do anything about it. And really, you've given up hope on him. You've limited him to be able to do what only you can see he could do rather than something supernatural, something that, is, that you can't see. You can't, there can't possibly be a way out of this because I can't see it. And so we've shrunk God down to our ways and our limits. See, we've restricted God. I wonder in your situation, can you see where you're tempted to despair? You've limited God, you've restricted him. Well, this morning in this passage, we need to realise and we get to see that God is bigger than we realise. And we need to, this morning together, unleash the power of God into our lives. And as we do that, and as we see that, it can unleash hope into the toughest and darkest of situations that we find ourselves in. There's a verse here which kind of is at the heart of the passage, where we see this is the moment where Elisha and Elijah are handing over. And Elisha sees that his his mentor and his hero, really, Elijah, is gone. And he cries out, In verse 14, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He thinks Elijah's gone and now that's it. Our hope is gone. He's limited God. And in the bits around this, really, we get uh, get to see, actually God's bigger than what Elisha thinks. And he's bigger than what we think. So let's have a reminder of where we are. And uh, we've had a bit of a gap from looking at at kings and the life of Elijah. Um, God, remember, has sent Elijah to his people as his prophet. A prophet was somebody who brought God's truth to God's people. He brought their word to them. And so God's word to them. So he would remind them what God has said in the past. But also, um, they would tell them uh, what God wants them to hear today. 
This is God's word, God's message. And he brought God's truth to them time and time again. But God's people were, as often in the Old Testament, in a bad way. And for many years, they were under King Ahab. And King Ahab was one of the worst of all the kings. Other kings kind of diluted God um, and, and God's worship, kind of accepting him and accepting other gods as well. But Ahab threw God out totally. And he wanted to bring in the worship of Baal. Remember, he married Jezebel, who was from one of the nations around, uh, one of the Baal-worshipping nations, uh, which was, a, you know, marrying somebody from a neighbouring country was very good politically and financially, would have opened trade deals up and things, but spiritually it was suicide. Ahab was a terrible king and he had dragged the nation of Israel down with him. And Elijah was called to speak into that situation. So Ahab had now died by this stage in 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, and um, Elijah was again uh, given this role of calling God's people back to God. But uh, even though God had used, his pe- uh, used Elijah to sustain them through this tough period, Elijah's time on this world was coming to an end. And it was time for him to pass over uh, his work to Elisha, his apprentice. And as we f- see this kind of handover in this chapter, we get to see four ways that God um, isn't restricted in this passage and ways that as we grasp, I pray, will give us hope and bring light into places where we're tempted to despair. The first thing we see in an area that God isn't restricted is this. God isn't restricted by geography. God isn't restricted by geography. Now, as I said, this is Elijah's last moment, his last day with Elisha before Elijah is taken to heaven. And they go on this journey and this tour it's kind of like a farewell tour. You might have seen Elton John has done his, I don't know, 10th last ever tour, I think, recently. That kind of going round and saying goodbye, I won't do this again. But this really is Elijah's farewell tour. He's going round the promised land in verse 1. He starts in Gilgal, we see there. Then he goes to Bethel. Then from Bethel, he goes to Jericho. And in each city that they go to, do you see that they meet a group of prophets? So in verse 3, uh, when they arrive in Bethel, There were sons of the prophets. Uh, And we see the same as they go to Jericho. Jericho, we see that they they are sons, in verse 5, of prophets. So everywhere he goes, Elijah is meeting these sons of prophets. Who are they? What are they? Well, these are probably groups of prophets that Elijah had been training up in these different cities. So he's going round and almost saying his goodbyes to these groups of prophets they're like kind of mini Bible schools that he was, he was training up people to pass the baton onto. And here he is getting them ready for his departure. They knew he was going because they, did you notice they go and tell Elisha, you know your boss is leaving today, don't you? And he's like, yes, I know, be quiet. He's, he's sad about it. This is something he doesn't want to um, deal with because he does, can't imagine life without Elijah. But what's interesting about where these sons of prophets are, where these schools of prophets are, is that they're in, in um, cities where dark things were happening and that had a very dark past. If you were to choose two cities that um, had a bad history, you would choose Bethel and Jericho. See, Bethel, we see, is where the temple to Baal is set up. That's where they all went to worship Baal. That's the centre of the worship to the false god. And yet, God had a group of prophets there. Or Jericho had a really dark past. Do you remember Jericho from the story? Um, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down yeah, when they marched around the city. Well, God commanded them because the city was so evil and it was such a, a dark place. God said, do not build a city again where Jericho was. 
because of what had gone on there. But 500 years later, what did God's people do? Oh, well, this is a nice spot for a city. Let's build a city here. They ignored God. They went their own way and they built it. So two places that show the rebellion of God's people, that show the darkness of where they've ended up. And yet, when Elijah and Elisha visit there, what do we see? There's a group of people who are speaking the truth, a group of people who have been, who've been protected, who have been kept, who are uh, telling people uh, about the message of God. They hold out the truth about him in the dark places, in the dark times. And that's what I wanted us to see from this moment here, is that God hasn't changed. God isn't restricted by city or history or backgrounds. He isn't restricted by geography. And there's countless examples all over church history, over the thousands of years we've got, of um, how God works in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. You know, 40 years ago, there were 500 known Christians uh, from a Muslim background in Iran. 500. But after 40 years of prayer and labouring there, there are now close to a million Iranian followers of Jesus from Muslim backgrounds. And, and it's now the fastest growing church in the world. You know, from 500 to a million in 40 years, that is such a big growth. God's not restricted by geography. We might rule, uh, we might say, well, not there, not because of that situation. But God is bigger. Oh, remember the story of Robert Germain Thomas that I know I've shared before. He was from Ryada in Mid Wales, and he wanted to share the gospel in Korea. So what did he do? Well, he, he went on a ship and he took Bibles with him. And as they were coming into land, Korea was quite a hostile country then, and uh, the, uh, they started being attacked. They were being shot at. And so he jumped overboard, and as he was going to the shore, he was giving out these Bibles and telling people, just saying the name Jesus and giving them a Bible. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And he gave out uh, as many Bibles as he could, and then he was killed. <coughs> now, the Korean authorities ordered people to destroy their Bibles and said, they told them to get rid of them. But instead of that, some people kept them. And what they ended up doing was using these Bibles and the pages from the Bibles as wallpaper. There's an idea for the next project in your house, isn't it? But wallpaper, they'd use them uh, on their walls. And um, what happened was, as these Bible pages were up on the walls, people were reading them, and people became Christians. And so when other missionaries arrived um, years later, they found that there was already a church there, that God had worked. See, God isn't restricted by geography. We limit him to how we think he can work or where he can work. But actually, he can work when the, when the government is totally opposed. God can still at work. And you can see this time and time again where the, church, uh, where the churches, um, where the governments try to crush the church, but it just grows and grows and grows. And it's interesting to see as well, as you look at the history of other religions, how different the history of Christianity is. So if you look at Islam, the majority of Islam's population is still in its place of origin. It's still where uh, in the Middle East. Uh, when you look at the centre of where Hindu, Hinduism is or Buddhism, um, they remain where they started. That's the centre. That's where the most um, people are. But when you look at Christianity, one writer points this out. Uh, first century was dominated by the Jews and it was centred in Jerusalem. But later it was dominated by Hellenists and went to the Mediterranean. And after that it went um, to the barbarians, to northern Europe. And then Christianity became dominated by Western Europe, as more and more people became Christians there, and then North America. But today, where is the centre of Christianity? Where is it at most growth? You see, it's moving. 
Um, most Christians in the world now live in Africa or Latin America or Asia. It's moving. God is at work. He doesn't say, I'm going to stick to this country and that's it. No, he moves all over because he isn't restricted by geography. So soon, uh, right, this writer pointed out a few years ago, this was now, so it might even be happening by now. Soon, Christianity will be centered in the southern and eastern hem- hemispheres rather than the northern hemispheres we might be used to. The center of Christianity. It moves because God is on the move because he isn't limited by geography. Now, when we realize that, that God isn't restricted by borders, he's not restricted by governments, he's not restricted by other religions, he can't be hemmed in like that. Um, He can work wherever he wants and however he wants because he is the Lord of all. Shouldn't that encourage us this morning? Encourage us, firstly, to think, as we were thinking about um, earlier, to pray for the world and for mission because this is God's heart and we'll be thinking about that next Sunday morning. Um, whether it is the McMasters or Becca Jones or Open Doors, Clyde and Jan Briggs are travelling soon again. We need to pray for them. Uh, as Romanian Ministries or Asia Link or UFM or EMF, all these organisations that we pray for, God can work anywhere. So let's keep on praying. Let's not restrict him to thinking, oh, how could God work there? He's not limited by geography. But also closer to home. Have you ruled him out of working here in, in Wales? Have you said, oh, no, he can't work here? Have you ruled him out from him working in my stake? Or Kaira, or Garth, or Nanti, or Cumvelin, or Sanganoid? Have you said, no, God can't work there? Well, God isn't restricted by geography. Let's unleash the hope that that brings when we realise that. So that's the first thing this passage shows us. Let's not restrict God. God isn't restricted by geography. The second thing we see is this. God isn't restricted by history. Sounding a bit like the lessons in school at the moment, isn't it? But um, he isn't restricted by history. So Elijah's doing this farewell tour, uh, and we see that he's not just picking random places. He's going on a particular route. And it's actually the route that Joshua took. So remember, God's people were brought out of Egypt. Moses was the, the leader that God was using. And then he handed on to Joshua, who then took them into the promised land. And so it's interesting, when Moses was handed on to Joshua, now Elijah is handed on to Elisha, and he's taking a similar route. But um, it's, it, he's doing something specific. He's showing, look, we're going to go on the same route, and we're going to end up, we're going to go to Gilgal, then we'll go to Bethel, then we'll go to Jericho, um, you know, and then we'll get to the Jordan. I think it's all, he's following the same route, and he's doing it for a particular reason. In the same way that God worked through Joshua 500 years ago, he can work today through you. That's the kind of thing he's telling Elisha. And to underline that point, you see the miracle that we see in this passage in verse 8. Elijah gets his cloak and he comes to the River Jordan and he hits the River Jordan and what happens? The waters part. Now that should be giving us loads of things. Hang on, I've heard that before. You know, I didn't think it was, I thought that was Moses. Or was it Joshua? It was both. Remember, Moses parted the Red Sea. Joshua parted the Jordan. And now Elijah is doing the same, coming to the same spot and the water parts. And look what it's saying. God is doing the same thing as he did then, today. He's not restricted by history. He doesn't get weaker as the years go by. God is bigger than that. Let's not limit him to that. As God parted the Red Sea with Moses, he parted the Jordan with Joshua, he's now parting it with Elisha, Elijah, and then we see Elisha doing the same miracle moments later after Elijah is taken uh, to heaven. So the big point is here is this, the God of the past 
is the same today. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua is the same God who's with us today. His power hasn't waned. He's not any weaker or older. He's beyond time. He's not limited and restricted by history. Now let's bring that truth home to us today. God is the same today as he was back then. He's the same today as he was when God moved in powerful ways in this nation. And he is doing all over the world today. Because it's very tempting to think, isn't it, as we sit in a big chapel building that used to be full, as we drive up and down the valley and see chapels and churches that are now shut down, and think, well, God worked in the past, but now he's kind of petering out a bit. Now he's losing his power. And it's very tempting for us to think, well, God won't do that again. Let's not limit God to history. God can do what he did then, and he can do it today. There is nothing stopping him. The same God who worked in power in the 19th century in Wales, the same God who worked in power in the 1905 revival, is the same today, and he can save. Just before those revivals happened, even in Wales, we see, they were dark spiritual times where people were ignoring God and doing their own thing. And then God came and he moved. It doesn't mean we just wait for those moments of revival and power and do nothing in the meantime, not at all. But as we labour on, we know that God at any moment can break in and he can do something wonderful and great. And the God who saved then can save today. And again, bring it closer to home. Now, we've all got a history, I mean, we've all got stories. If you're a Christian here this morning, God worked in you. And if he worked in you, he can save others. And if he, saves, if he can save us, he can save anyone. Let's not restrict him to history, just to the past. And he's at work today all over the world in ways which are wonderful and glorious. And we just need to open our eyes to see. So have you limited God and put him in a box and made him think, oh, he can't do that today? Don't restrict God because he isn't restricted by history. He's not restricted by geography. He's not restricted by history. And the third thing we see is this. God isn't restricted by personality. Because as we've looked through Elijah's life, God used him in special ways. Think of some of the miracles we've looked at. He brought that boy back from the dead, the widow of Zarephath. He brought fire down from heaven. Remember all the worshippers of Baal were there and and he said, you bring your, um, you ask your God, I'll ask mine. And God did this amazing thing through Elijah. He brought, uh, God brought food to him when he was hungry and he he was fed miraculously in the wilderness. He kept the flour uh, coming and, and God used him in that way to help feed those in need. And he spoke fiercely to this king who wanted him dead. You know, God used Elijah to do amazing things. And we don't see miracles like this all over the place. They come in kind of concentrated moments throughout the Old Testament uh, history. We saw it at, at the wilderness, in the wilderness with Moses and Joshua. And then we see it again with Elijah. Just these moments where God uses and comes in power. And now he's leaving and he's going to be with God, as we'll look at in a moment. And you can tell the kind of sadness there is in this passage. There's that moment again. Elisha, his apprentice, doesn't want to leave his side. You stay here, and I'm going on. Reminds me a bit of the Narnia books where Aslan says to the children, I've got to go now to the stone table, and they want to stay with him. Well, here Elijah is saying to Elisha, "Um, you stay here, I'm going on. He says, no, 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 I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be by your side. And three times he asks him to stay here, stay here, stay here. And three times Elisha says, no, I'm staying with you. I'm coming. Uh, And the sons of prophet come and tell him, don't they, in verse 3, 
and the other ones as well later on in verse 5. You know today's the day he's leaving, don't you? And Elisha's just like, please be quiet. I know, of course I know. I just don't really want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. And then we see Elijah goes to the other side of the Jordan, the waters part. And then Elisha asks him for something. Do you notice that in verse 9? Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you, Elijah asks him. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, what's Elisha asking for then? Is he saying, I want double of your power to be able to do double what you can do? No, that's not what he's asking. When you think of a double portion, that's referring back to the way that inheritance was passed on um, at these times. So the older brother, older brother, the older son would get a double portion of the inheritance. One of the reasons being the older son would have to stay on the farm, say, for example, where the, um, where, the, where the family was, he'd have to stay, the others could go. So he would get a double portion and the others would get the rest divided up. So what Elisha is saying is, I want, to be, I want to inherit what you have. I want to be the next in line. I want to be used in the same way that you, you, you've been used. Uh, can I be the next one? That's what he's saying. I want a double portion. I want to be, uh, the, have your inheritance. And then, um, how is he going to get that? Well, he says, look, if you see what's going to happen to me later on, then that shows me you have faith and you have eyes to see, and then you can do it. So Elijah is then taken away in a whirlwind, which we'll look at in the next point. Uh, but his cloak is left, verse 13. And Elijah, uh, Elisha takes the cloak. It's annoying these names are so similar, isn't it? Elisha takes the cloak and he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He's thinking Elijah's gone. Does that mean God has gone too? God used him in such a powerful way. Does that mean that's it? Is his work over? But then what happens next kind of confirms that that kind of thinking is wrong. Because um, he picks up this and when he, he strikes the water, so Elisha strikes the water and it's parted, uh, one on the other side, and Elisha went over. And then the sons of the prophets see, ah, the spirit of the Lord rests on Elisha now. The spirit of Elijah rests on him in verse 15. So he must be the, the heir now of, and he's going to take on from Elijah. But they still don't want to believe that he's gone, do they? They think, oh, he's been taken away in the world, maybe he's just kind of popped out somewhere else. Can we go and have a look for him? And Elisha's saying, he's gone, boys. Leave it be. He said, no, 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 we've got to go. And he kept hassling them. And he said, fine, go and have a look for him. And then our passage ends in verse 18 and says, I told you, I told you he's gone. But they still wanted to cling on to Elijah because they'd seen God work so much through him. Now, what's God, what's the point of this passage? What's going on here? Can you see that God wants us to see that it's not about the person, but it's about him. He's the one who worked through Elijah, and he will now be working through Elisha. Regardless of who the person is, it is God who is important, um, not the person. Um, as I said, the sons of uh, the prophets wanted him to stay. They wanted to find him, but he was nowhere to be found. Because you know, God could see the danger here of putting the trust in a man uh, or, or a person who God could use. But God was gone, Sorry, Elijah is gone, but God was still at work. That's the whole point of him saying, where is the Lord? What's happening is he realises he's with me. So often the temptation in um, the Christian world is to put our faith in leaders and in people and to say, unless we have them, God can't work. So we look back to people of the past and we think, well, God worked through them and he won't work now because that person's gone. And then we idolise these people and we live in the past. 
But God is not restricted to personality. I remember reading about Robert Murray McShane. He was a, a minister in Scotland in the 19th century. And um, he was a really godly, prayerful, passionate man. A wonderful preacher. You can read his sermons and his story. Um, he died when he was young in his 30s, in his 20, late 20s, sorry. And um, he had a deep burden for revival. He wanted God to move in power in Dundee where he was. And he prayed for it. He encouraged the church to pray for it. And then this opportunity came up for him to go to Israel on a, a kind of a scouting missions type trip. And, and he wrote this just before he left. He said, I sometimes think that a great blessing may come to my people in my absence. Often God does, does not bless us when we're in the midst of our labours, lest we shall say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. McShane confessed to a friend. He removes us into silence and then pours down a blessing so that there is no room to receive it, so that all can cry out, it is the Lord. May it be really so with my dear people. He wrote that before he left and then he went to Israel and while he was away, he'd asked a man called William Chalmers Burns to preach. And what happened while he was away? God moved in amazing power. He came and even though this gifted man, um, Robert Murray McShane was there, pastor and minister, God waited till he was gone to say, I'll now work. Just so people could say, see, it's not him. It's the Lord. It's him who's done it. Hundreds and hundreds were saved while he was away in Israel. God wants us to see it's not about personality. It's not about a person, but about the Lord, about God. Now, in our lives, have we restricted God to a personality? Maybe in your mind you think, well, God will only use somebody who maybe stands up the front to preach. He'll only use the pastor or the elders. And perhaps you think, there's no way I could do that, so I can't be used. You see, we've limited God to a person or personality. Perhaps we look back on a spiritual hero of ours and think, well, God can't work like that again. But God can work uh, apart from us. It's not about the person, but about the God they followed. Maybe you think, well, God will only use me if I can pray in a certain way or pray publicly or, or do those things. And, and we think, well, God will never use me because I struggle to get my words. I struggle to do it. God can work in spite of personality. Don't limit him to that. Maybe you think God can only use people who've got this gift or that gift. And again, we limit him. We restrict him. But look what we see here. God wants to work through all different types of people at all different types of time. And we might ask today, you know, a bit like Elisha, where is the God of the Lord? Where is the God of Elijah? And he's dwelling in every believer. That's the point. He works through all of us. And he's dwelling in you and he can use you. Don't just think it's just one or two people, but God can use all of us. Remember the picture that Paul gives us of the body with the body of Christ? We need all members working together to bring glory to him. Some members are more obvious than others, but we need everybody working together. So have you limited God to not using you? Have you thought, no, he can't use me. He can only use people like this or like that. No, we need to realize that God can use us. In fact, when we feel weak and empty, we're at the position where God is really going to use us when we see, because then, as um, Robert Murray McShane said, we'll see it's all from the Lord. It's not us. We're weak, but God can work. So God isn't restricted by geography. He's not restricted by history. He's not restricted by personality. And finally, God is not limited by mortality. I'll just finish by zooming in on the most famous part of this passage, really, which is where Elijah is taken into heaven. And something that I was, uh, saw this week and forgot, really, he doesn't, he doesn't get taken in the um, chariot, does he? 
He doesn't go in the chariot. He's taken up in the whirlwind. The chariots were there, but they were kind of just the, um, just the entourage. And he was then taken up in the whirlwind. Because what happened, look at it in verse 11. We see there. Uh, and they still went on and talked. Behold, chariots of fire and, the horse, and horses of fire separated the two of them. So there was Elisha, there was Elijah, and these chariots of fire were standing before them. And then we see Elisha, um, Elijah was, went up by a whirlwind into heaven, verse 11. So he's taken up. And what's going on? Well, in this moment, Elisha sees the chariots of fire. He sees the horses of fire. And Elijah earlier was saying, if you see how I'm taken from you, then I'll see that you've got faith. What's going on here? Well, he sees a, a deeper spiritual realm. That's what Elijah, Elisha is seeing here. He sees the chariots of fire. And in fact, in a few chapters' time, if you read in chapter 6, we see again Elisha seeing these chariots of fire. There's a moment there where God, uh, well, the king is really angry with Elisha because he keeps predicting where the enemy of Israel is going uh, to um, Mossad going to attack and as they come into attack we see there that Elisha is always a step ahead now there God God uh, and he's saying God will you uh, you know you know who's telling me who's the spy and so the king comes to attack Elisha and he prays um the servant goes out sorry the servant goes out and he looks around and he sees all this, this, this army's going to attack us, Elisha. It's just you and me. We've had it. They've got chariots. They've got horses. You know, they've got their tanks, as it were. And Elisha prays. He says, I pray that you'll be able to see a reality here. I pray that you would see that there's more who are with us than those who are with them. And then the servant sees these chariots of fire surrounding them all around. There's a deeper spiritual reality at work. God works in ways that we can't see all of it. And there's things going on that we need faith to see. And as we think of that, we think there's more than meets the eye in what's going on. That should really encourage us. It means we can be praying. And we're not always praying. In a, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But there's a spiritual realm. There is attacks going on on you that we can't see. We have an enemy, the devil, who hates Christians. And we need to pray together for each other because he wants to kind of attack. He wants to get amongst us. He wants to divide us. And so we need to pray, Lord, protect us. He wants to discourage us. He wants to sell us lies. There's a realm we're not aware of that we need to pray for eyes to see. Lord, please help me to realise that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We need to pray to the Lord to help us. But God is doing things behind the scenes that we can't always see. But also notice what this section is telling us. Because it all sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? This chariot of fire, out of nowhere, this horse of fire, goes up to heaven in a whirlwind. It just sounds so strange. But here is a God who is doing something supernatural. God invented nature. He made up all the laws. And so he can break them when he wants to. As we saw with the Lord Jesus, he could walk on water. We can't. But he invented the laws of nature so he could go against them. And here we see God breaks the natural order. He enters into uh, this moment and he takes Elijah away. It gives us a glimpse, doesn't it, of a God who can defeat death, who's bigger than death, who can deal with death as he wants to. And that's what we see with Jesus, isn't it? When Jesus was on this world, when he died, it looked like it was the end. It looked like there was no hope. But three days later, what happened? He rose again. He goes against the grain. He goes against nature because... 
Well, Jesus paid the punishment we deserve. He died the death that we deserved. And he shows us he's bigger than death. Today, when we think about our mortality, our limits, our death, who are we trusting in? Maybe you're fearful today about your end. You think, I don't know how it's going to happen. Don't, is God going to help me? But we realise when we look at Jesus, God is bigger than mortality. Remember Jesus when he was speaking to the girl who died, Jairus' daughter, and he, um, he kind of wakes her up from sleep, he holds her hand and he says, Talitha Kumi, little girl, get up. And she just wakes up. In the same way, when our hand is in Jesus' hand, going, when we die, it's just like falling asleep. Because he's bigger than it. He's bigger than death. And we can trust him in the midst of it all. God is bigger than mortality. Have you limited him in that area? Are you fearful when actually you can trust in him? And maybe for the first time today, you need to put your trust in Jesus. You haven't yet, and you're not sure what's happening and what's to come, but then we realise, no, today you might be needing to see, I need to trust in Jesus. I need his um, strength and his power because he is bigger than death. So when we, as we come to close now, think of that situation you're tempted to despair in. Have you limited God? Have you said, God can't work here, he can't work that there, he can't do that, but actually remember and see today, he isn't restricted by geography, he can work anywhere. He isn't restricted by history, he can do it anytime. He isn't restricted by personality, he can use anyone. And he's not restricted by or limited by mortality because he's the one uh, who defeated death. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we too know we're on the winning side. He's the conqueror and he's the one who's defeated it. We're going to sing about that in a moment, but before we do that, let's, let's pray.